As a church, we are committed to this calling that Jesus has given to us to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And as a church, we do that a couple different ways. One way that we do that is by investing in those in our own church so that they would grow into Christ's likeness, that as people move on, that they would leave here and be more effective and equipped in the next place that they go. Also, raising up the next generation. Another way that we do that is by supporting and sending out missionaries to plant churches, um, to be missionaries across our globe, but also by reaching out and um, serving campuses and serving students and student ministries. And so this morning, I'm delighted to introduce to you Cyril Chavis, who is starting a campus ministry at Howard University in Washington, D.C. And Cyril is a, grew up in Virginia Beach, attended the University of Virginia, and then he um, went to seminary at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. And it was down there that he met his wife, Janelle, and then served as a campus minister at Jackson State University for five years. He's an ordained pastor uh, in, the, in our denomination. And so, Cyril, why don't you come and open God's word for us this morning? But as he comes, the thing I want you to you can come all the way up, man. It's okay. Um, um, the thing I want to encourage you with this morning is that the reason to listen to him is because he is a man who loves the Lord. If you get to know him, he is someone for whom the joy of the Lord fills his heart. He's committed to the word of God and committed to other people knowing the joy that comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. So please open God's word for us this morning. Bro. Good morning. It's, it's good to be here this morning. Thanks, uh, Pastor Walt, for the kind introduction. Um, all right, well, um, like Walt already said, I'm Cyril Chavis, and I'm uh, an RUF campus minister, and uh, I'm here to, in Washington, D.C., Washington, D.C., coming from Jackson, Mississippi, to start an RUF at Howard University, and uh, I'm very grateful for Cornerstone's partnership and, and giving and prayer and service, so uh, it's a joy to stand before you all this morning to be able to uh, share in God's Word. So if y'all would turn with me to John chapter 4, John chapter 4. So in uh, John's gospel account, we see that he is kind of is towards the beginning of his gospel, and uh, Jesus is doing different signs, and he's traveling around and meeting people and teaching, and he's healing. And one of the conversations he has that is recorded in this gospel account is the conversation with the Samaritan woman. Now, just to give you a little bit of background to understand where we are, he meets this woman at the well. It's in the middle of the day. Nobody else is there uh, because she's a social outsider. And so he's talking with her, and they're, they're talking about water and living water, and he's basically asking her to give him water, and she's like, you know, um, you know, who do you think you are? Like, this well was Jacob's well. Jacob, also known as Israel, the, the founding father of kind of God's people. And she says, you know, who are, who are you to drink water from this well? Are you greater than our father Jacob? And he, he doesn't say these words, but he's basically like, yes, I'm greater than our, our father Jacob. I'm the a uh, true leader of God's people, and so she becomes convinced that this is more than just a regular guy, that this could be the, the king who's supposed to come and restore all things, and so uh, Jesus' disciples, all while this was happening, they were getting bread in the town because, you know, they had been traveling and they were hungry, and so now the disciples are coming back. So there's just a little background, John chapter 4, verse 27. John chapter 4, verse 27. I'll, I'll read God's word, I'll pray, and, and then we'll dive in. Um, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, 
come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After two days, he departed for Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. You all pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this time. Lord, we thank you that we can gather here we can open up your word that you have given us through the apostles and prophets, Lord, and we can see what it is that you have to say to us. Lord, we know that your word tells us about who you are and our duty concerning you. So, Lord, I pray that we would learn more about you and learn more how to live a life that is uh, walking with you, a life that is before your face. So, Lord, I ask that you would give me strength. That's not just something I say, Lord, I really do need your help. Lord, give me energy. Uh, Lord, would you give me an earnestness? Lord, would you help me to explain this and make this plain? Holy Spirit, I really do need you. And God, would you please help my hearers, your hearers? Lord, would you open their hearts that they might hear your word, and they would not only hear it, but that they would love it, they would believe it, they would cherish it. Not only that, Lord, but that it would change their lives, that they would store it up in their hearts, and practice it in their lives. Lord, would you help us all not only be just good hearers of your word, but Lord, would you help us to be good doers? So Lord, we thank you for all these things. Lord, we pray that you will be with us in this time and bless us. Lord, we love you. Amen. So, there is a term nowadays that describes a very serious condition. Uh, This uh, condition can strike at any moment. It can be sudden or it can be uh, kind of long-lasting. It, it causes emotional distress. It causes strain. It causes anxiety. It can cause sadness. It can cause uh, relationships to break apart. Can y'all guess what this is? FOMO. Someone got it. All right. It's FOMO. Fear of missing out. F-O-M-O. Uh, and so if you do a Google search of FOMO on the, uh, the Internet, it is the mental or emotional strain caused by the fear or missing out. So when something fun or desirable or amazing is going on, and you aren't a part of it, but you know about it, you experience FOMO. Now, FOMO can look like a lot of things. FOMO can look like if you're a college student and you know you have to write a paper is due the next morning at 8 a.m., 
You're like, okay, you're being responsible. You sit down, you're beginning to type it. And then your friend says, hey, come to this party. Uh, man, it's, it's going to be great. Or come to this function, come to this cookout or wherever it is. And you know you need to write that paper, but you have a fear of missing out. And you go to the party and you come back home and you pull an all-nighter to write this paper. FOMO can strike hard. Or it can look like, you know, you are, um, you know, taking care of the kids and you're at home because your spouse is out hanging out with their friends and then you see this last minute thing pop up and it looks really exciting. You really wish you could go to it, but you're taking care of the kids. FOMO can strike in that situation as well. But it can also look like, you know, does anyone have dogs, have a pet, you know? I don't, I don't know, like when we had a dog and guests would come over, we would put our dog in the crate in the garage, and we can hear our dog barking and whining and, and howling. Our dog was experiencing FOMO. <laughs> FOMO can strike any and everybody and anything, right? So FOMO can be pretty horrible. We can ex- experience this sadness or this distress from missing out. But here's the thing. I believe that the church's problem isn't that we experience FOMO. I think our problem is that we don't experience enough FOMO. You see, here's the thing. Jesus is up to something amazing. He's up to something exciting. And this is his mission. He is wanting to reach any and everybody, all nations, with the good news that Jesus saves sinners. And he wants his people to reach out. And he's calling us on a mission with him to to engage in Christian outreach and to share the good news and to uh, do this in the context of serving other people. But we oftentimes have no fear of missing out. We lack FOMO for God's mission. So what I want to do today, I want to talk about God's mission. I want to talk about the beauty of it. I want to make it compelling. I want it uh, to make it something that you want to be a part of. Uh, And if you don't get anything from our time today, uh, walk away with this. Jesus is on a mission. Are you with him? That's the main point. That's the big idea, whatever you want to call it. That's the main thing. Jesus is on a mission. Are you with him? I want to look at three things about Jesus' mission. It's scandalous, it's urgent, and it is successful. Scandalous, urgent, and successful. So first, let's look at Jesus' mission is scandalous. So um, just a little bit about this passage. So verses 27 through 30 Basically, Jesus is talking with a Samaritan woman, and his disciples, they were out getting bread, and he comes back, uh, or the disciples come back, and they see him talking with this woman. And they're basically saying, what is Jesus doing talking with this woman? Now, in order to understand this, you have to understand a little bit about some common day thinking uh, that some people held to. So now, Jesus was a rabbi, which basically means he's a Jewish teacher. He's kind of like a, a religious authority. During that day, it was kind of scandalous for rabbis to talk with women. Basically, in some common day thought, at best it was a waste of time, and at worst it was spiritually dangerous. So we see the disciples' prejudice coming out here when they encounter Jesus talking with a woman. But not only that, Jesus is talking with a Samaritan. Now, Jesus was a Jew, and Jews did not interact with Samaritans. They did not want to engage with them. They would go out of their way to not encounter them. Because the Jews saw Samaritans as kind of having like a bootleg version of their religion and kind of being half-blooded Jews. And so not only is Jesus talking with a woman, but he's also talking with a Samaritan woman. And so the disciples are like, what is Jesus doing? And kind of what we see here is that Jesus' mission goes against a lot of the common day uh, customs and thoughts during that day. Now, you might be like, Jesus' mission is scandalous. You know, what does that mean, a scandal? A scandal is basically something that causes public outrage by 
um, breaking common, he- commonly held customs or laws or ways of thinking. Jesus doing this would have been a scandal to the common day thinking of that time. It would have outraged some people. And what I think John includes this in his gospel account to show us the nature of Jesus' mission. His mission reaches across sexes. He invites both men and women into his kingdom and affirms their equality. Women are not second-class citizens in Jesus' kingdom. This would have been scandalous to the Jews. Jesus' mission reaches across race and class. Uh, he reaches uh, across the, uh, uh, the Jewish boundaries and invites Samaritans into his kingdom. He invites Jews into his kingdom and affirms their equality. This would have been scandalous. He inv- uh, reaches across social lines. You see, uh, this woman, this particular woman, was a social outcast, which is why she's at the well by herself. Uh, he is reaching to the social outsider and invites them into his kingdom. This would have been scandalous for a religious teacher to do. His mission also reaches across political lines. He's reaching out to every nation, every political party, Jew and Samaritan, and he is inviting them into his kingdom. You see, uh, so my wife and I, I've been married for three years. We have two kids, but when we first got married, we wanted to kind of create like a, a big C to hang up in our house. And so we went to this place called the Mosaic Shop. It's in Jackson, Mississippi. Have any of y'all ever done mosaic art? Are y'all familiar with it a little bit? You basically have like a piece of wood, and you take all these different kinds of uh, containers with these different things in them. Some could be pieces of glass and, you know, bullet shell casings and broken jewelry or plastic pieces or whatever. It could be anything. And you're you're gluing them down on this piece of wood to create a piece of art. And y'all, this is kind of what it's like when God is on mission in the world. He sits down and he sees all these different containers of people separated. You know, he, he reaches in one container and takes whites and another container and, cre- and takes blacks and Hispanic Americans and Asian Americans. He glues them down on his piece. He looks over here and he takes men and he takes women and he glues them down. He takes the social outsider and the social insider and he glues them down. Uh, he reaches across political lines. He takes Democrats and Republicans and independents, and he glues them down on his artwork. He takes all these different type of people from all these different containers, and he wants to make a beautiful artwork, piece of artwork called the church, glued together by love. And here's the thing. If, the, if Jesus wants to unite the whole world under his lordship, aren't divisions a problem? You know, the book of Ephesians talks about Jesus wants to reconcile the whole universe to himself. Everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And you're like, what does that look like? Jesus uniting everything under the earth and on earth and heavens? He's basically saying everything should be submitted to my lordship and experience the joy and the peace and the, and the justice of submitting to him. And if that's true, divisions are a problem. But isn't our world divided that we, that we see other people just like us and we want to hang around those people because they kind of make us feel comfortable? And then we start talking about the people in the other containers, right? And we're just kind of fantasizing and imagining what they're really like without actually knowing what they're really like. And so we grow deeper and deeper into fear and paranoia into our own containers before we know it. Like we're all separated in all these different things. And don't we kind of see it in our churches sometimes? Like we have all, like this, this has kind of bled into our churches. We have like you know, the, um, the Republican church, the Democratic church, the cowboy church. You know, we have, like, the church that likes, you know, this type of music and the church that likes hymns, the church that likes contemporary songs. And the church, you know, we are the white church, the black church, the, all these different types of churches. We see that our world and even oftentimes our churches are divided. And Jesus is wanting to do something different. He wants his church 
to adopt this kind of mosaic heart and to be on mission across boundaries, across containers, so to speak. Jesus is calling us to engage his scandalous mission. And, and, and if y'all are anything like me, you know, I have all these fears and I get in my head sometimes and I have anxieties and insecurities and I'm, you know, afraid and I overthink stuff. And, you know, so there's this, you know, group of people that I want to talk to, but I'm, 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 I'm weird about it and I'm afraid I'm going to be socially awkward and I'm, you know, a little scared and, you know, I want to go to this part of town and I want to reach out to this person, but I don't know. And Jesus, but here's a good thing. Jesus doesn't have any of that going on. Jesus is not like me. He's not insecure. He's not scared. He's not overthinking anything. Jesus knows all of my fears, all of my doubts, all of my prejudices, all of my worries, and he goes before me, and he goes with me, and he meets me in my fears, and he encourages me. This is the good news, that Jesus is not afraid to go to those places that we're scared to go to or to talk to those people that we're scared to talk to. Jesus goes with us in his scandalous mission. Um, but not only is it scandalous, secondly, it's urgent. Jesus' mission is urgent, and it's urgent, it's urgent because it's ready. Um, so in verses 31 and 38, so this is kind of what happens. Jesus is talking with this woman. The disciples who are out buying bread, they come back, and I imagine it's kind of awkward. You know, the Samaritans are over in the, I mean, the disciples are in the corner whispering. They're like, you know, what's Jesus doing talking to this, you know, woman? And then Jesus and the woman are probably like, what are my disciples doing? And, you know, the woman's like, okay. All right, I'm going to go back to the town. And so she goes back to the town. She tells all of them about Jesus. And now the whole town is coming on the horizon. Can you imagine that? Just a town walking towards Jesus. And so Jesus is here, kind of, he starts schooling his disciples on mission. So it's funny because, you know, you have Jesus' disciples. They, you know, let's say, you know, we call Jesus' discipleship, you know, the Jesus University of Mission or something like that, you know. They're, they're seniors. They're, they're about to graduate. They've been with Jesus for three, you know, well, I don't know how many years, but they've been with Jesus for a little bit now. They've lived with him, walked with him. And here's a Samaritan woman. She has one credit hour, and she's going, and she's bringing a whole town to them, while in the meantime, he's schooling them on how to be on mission. So then Jesus starts to talk to them about harvesting. It switches from water imagery to harvest imagery. And so, and then he starts talking about how urgent this mission is. Now, when I say the word urgent, some of y'all are like getting a little stressed out, you know, because when you think about urgency, you think about something that you have to give immediate attention to or something bad is going to happen, right? It's like, well, I got to do this because if I don't do this, then this bad thing is going to happen. But that's not what Jesus' mission is like. His mission rests on his shoulders. It's his mission and it's going to get done without us. The urgency is not an urgency because it depends on us. It's urgent because he is inviting us into something amazing, and how dare we wait a second to hop in. It's almost like, you know, if um, you were working and someone called you and they say, hey, I called your boss and he's giving you two weeks paid vacation. There's an all-expense paid vacation to Disney World. We got you a villa in Florida. Just go, you know, take your family, take, take some friends and go. Just enjoy it, all-expense paid. Now, if you got that phone call, what would you do? I know me. I'm running back home, telling my wife, Janelle, pack the kids up. We're going to Disney World right now, right? <laughs> it wouldn't make sense for me to go home and be like, ah, whatever. I'm going to sit around and, you know, continue to. He's like, no, go. There's something amazing there. It's urgent that you pack up and we go. 
Or it's maybe like maybe you're on a sports team, maybe you're a basketball player and you're injured, and your team is a championship team. You know you're going to win, and your team is playing, and you want to get in the game because you want to be a part of what's happening. But because you're injured, you can't get in the game. So you feel this like you have to get in the game. You're willing to play. You're willing to risk your knee injury to get in the game. Why? It's urgent, not because it depends on you, because your team is going to win anyway. Like, they're going to win without you. You want to get in the game because you want to be a part of something amazing. You want to be a part of something going on that is important. And that's what Jesus' mission is like. It's urgent, not because it depends on you. It's urgent because it's amazing. And so Jesus shows them the beautiful urgency of his mission with harvest imagery. So in verse 35, he tells them, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. So he's basically pointing to the time there is between putting seed in the ground and actually having food to eat, right? Between sowing and reaping. So ordinarily, uh, in agricultural societies, people will recognize there's a, there's a time, there's, there's waiting. Jesus is like, look, I've sowed the seed. I talked to this Samaritan woman, and already the town is coming on the horizon. Jesus is like, there is no waiting. It is ready now. Hop in. And then the next imagery he uses, uh, he says, one sows and another reaps. This saying points to the fact that uh, yielding a harvest is teamwork, right? There are people who sow. There's people who reap. There's people who are taking care of the animals and all these things. Jesus is basically saying, hey, I'm a one-man band. I have sowed, and you weren't there, and now I am reaping, and you just showed up. (laughs) He's basically saying, he's telling his disciples, you have contributed nothing to what is going on here. You're just here to jump in. They have missed the sowing, but they are present for the ready harvest. Jesus is telling them to hop in. Everything is set up for them. You see, the reality is the disciples contributed nothing to what Jesus did except their incompetence and their ignorance. Jesus has the burden of ministry, and he is inviting his disciples to labor with him. And family, this is what it's like now in 2019, that Jesus is inviting you to labor with him. And all throughout the Bible, he gives us promises that show us that it is his mission and not ours, and we're simply hopping in. In Matthew 16, he tells us that he will advance his church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Basically saying, I will advance the church. The church will never go extinct. Uh, And then on top of that, not only is it a succeeding mission, uh, he says this in Ephesians 2. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So not only is it a guaranteed mission, but it's literally planned out. God in his infinite wisdom has planned out every good work that we are to do, and it's just up to us to walk in them. But not only that, in Philippians 2, verse 13, he says, the Bible says this, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So not only are you in a succeeding mission, it is it's set up for you, but the Holy Spirit gives you the energy and the strength to even continue in it. And not only that, When's the last time you breathed on somebody and they had new spiritual life? I don't know about y'all, but that's not how it works for me. See, when I'm reaching out to people and sharing the good news about Jesus, it is God who is working. God has to convince people. God has to give people hope. God has to inspire and, and convince people and persuade people. We, all we have to do is hop in. 
And see, what the reason why I'm saying these things is because even though we have a responsibility to engage in the mission, it is God who is walking with us. It is God who is all his power and his wisdom and his, and his might are with us as we go out. Even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of failures, God says, I'm with you and I am at work. Um, but not only is it urgent because it's ready, but it's urgent because it's joyous. There's great joy to be had. So in verses 34 and 36, he talks about food imagery and, and uh, harvest imagery again. So in verse 34, he says this, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So I want y'all real quick to just think about y'all's favorite meal. Do you, do you have a favorite meal? Do you, do you know what it is? Just I want you to picture it like, you know, I'm coming from Jackson, Mississippi. So like when I'm picturing my favorite meal, I'm thinking about like duck sausage and pork cracklings and gravy, and I could just, I could just picture it now. Y'all are like, whoa, duck sauce is like, we're just thinking about crab cakes, you know, or something like that, you know, but just imagine your favorite meal, um, and like, I can remember the place I had. I can remember who I was with when I had it. I can remember like the restaurant, you know, I can remember all of that uh, because it, it, it was good, and have you ever like started a meal, and then you're sad it's going to end? You're like, man, I'm so glad I'm having this meal, but I'm also a little sad that, like, I'm going to finish this meal. <laughs> That's what our favorite meals do to us. They're satisfying. And Jesus, when his disciples come back from the town with bread, and they're like, Jesus, eat. They're like, Rabbi, eat. Jesus is like, I'm satisfied. The, the Father's mission is my favorite meal. So Jesus uses this imagery of satisfaction and, and deep, deep feeling when it comes to being on God's mission. But not only that, he uses uh, like festival party imagery. Uh, so have you ever thought about the fact that a harvest festival is called a harvest festival? Like there's a festival attached to harvest. And it's like, why? You know, nowadays we just go to Kroger or Trader Joe's or something to get food. But back then, when you have a harvest, it was time to party because like, yeah, we're going to eat. We're not all going to die, right? <laughs> and so Jesus basically is saying that's what it's like to be on mission. He says this, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. So Jesus is saying, not only am I satisfied by being on mission, he says, I'm having a, a, a party, I'm having fun. And Jesus says, he wants you to share that joy with him by reaching out in, in Christian service and uh, sharing the good news that Jesus rescues and saves and restores he wants you to join in the fun that he's having, the, the joy that he's having. Um, and so he, here's the thing. Um, oftentimes, we, you know, we, we, we might be in a spiritual plateau. We might be in a spiritual dry spot. You know, we just, we say, yeah, we're, I'm, I'm a Christian, but I just don't know if I'm feeling it. And I think, you know, I'm feeling kind of blah spiritually. And I feel like I'm just going through the motions. What if that you're in that spiritual dry spot? Because you've neglected the satisfaction and joy that God has for you by being on mission. What if the, that, that satisfaction and joy is being missed in your life and you are feeling it? You see, I'm you know, just growing, just, you know, even before I was a pastor, just being a Christian, some of the most satisfying and joy-filled moments of the Christian life in my memory have been moments where I've seen God use me to give people hope, to, to, to display his glory, or to, to introduce people to Jesus, even when he, and always when he is working in spite of me, him working through me brings satisfaction and joy, and this same satisfaction and joy is for you. 
Um, but lastly, Jesus' mission is successful. Jesus' mission is successful. So in the last verse, it's basically, okay, so the, the town is, is on the horizon. They're coming to Jesus. They meet him. They say, hey, will you hang out with us for, uh, you know, a few days? And he's like, sure. So he and his disciples, they go to the town, and they're in that Samaritan town for two days. And while they're there, they're, they're talking with Jesus. They're getting to know him. And then they go to the Samaritan woman, and they're like, hey, you know, we already believed because you told us. We, 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 we took you at your word. But now we have seen Jesus' lips move ourselves. We have heard and know for ourselves that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Now, there's something interesting here. So in verse uh, 42, uh, they call Jesus the Savior of the world. This term is actually a pretty rare term in the Bible. It only occurs twice in the Bible. It occurs here, and then it occurs in 1 John. Uh, Even though we, we sometimes use it a lot in the church, it's actually a rare term. And I think there's something interesting going on here. Now, you see, the Jews, their term for their end-time Savior was the Messiah. The Messiah was like, you know, a, a, a king-like figure. He was supposed to be like King David. And he was supposed to come at the end of the ages and restore God's uh, rule and reign. He was supposed to bring peace and justice and righteousness and joy. Now, but the Samaritans, their kind of end-time Savior was called the Tehev. This person was supposed to be a Moses-like figure, and this person was supposed to come and restore all things. And, but, but here's the thing. They don't call Jesus the Messiah, and they don't call Jesus the Tehev. They call Jesus the Savior of the world. And I think what's going on here is they say, hey, this, this just isn't the Jewish Savior. This just isn't the Samaritan Savior. This is the Savior of all the nations of the whole world. And we see something weird is going on in this Samaritan town. Jews and Samaritans who never hang out with each other. It's even weird that Jesus and his disciples were even going through Samaritan country because most of the, most of the time Jews would like take the long route just to go around it. They're in a Samaritan town hanging out with Samaritans and they're united by their common concern for Jesus. And then you see these people are introduced to Jesus by someone that they had ostracized, that they had... Uh, kind of left on the outside. So this woman, who was an outsider because of her sexual sin, she, she was kind of an outsider. That's why she was at the well by herself at the hottest part of the day. This social outsider becomes a spiritual insider because of Jesus. And she goes to the people who cast her out, and she's like, hey, come and see this guy. And uh, so she's going to social outsider, going to social insiders to uh, bring them who are spiritual outsiders to become spiritual insiders. Like, a lot of weird stuff is going on in this town, and it's because Jesus showed up. Jesus' mission is successful in this town. Um, but now here's the thing. Uh, so there's something else interesting here. In verse 5 in chapter 4, it says that this is all happening at a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Um, And so, and Jacob's well was there. So now this well, Jesus and the Samaritan woman were having a conversation about water. And so basically, you know, like I said, she's like, hey, you are talking about getting water out of this well. Are you greater than Jacob, our our forefather? And Jesus doesn't say it, but he's basically like, yes, I'm the true and better Jacob. I'm here to give living water, right? But then it's interesting, you know, the conversation switches to harvest imagery. He starts talking about harvest. And I think it has to do with the fact that the field Uh, was Jacob's, and Jacob gave it to Joseph. So I think Jesus is trying to show us something about his relationship to Joseph. Have have y'all heard of uh, Joseph? 
uh, that basically Joseph was one of the 12 sons of, of Jacob, and Joseph was the youngest of, of the crew, and his brothers grew jealous of him because the, the father favored Joseph. So they basically sold Joseph into slavery. He was a slave in, in uh, Potiphar's house. Then he, on top of that, he was wrongly accused of rape. So now he's thrown in jail. And here's the thing. While, while he was in jail, he meets two people that are part of Pharaoh's court. Now, Pharaoh was, you know, the king of Egypt. He, you know, he was a big deal. And so he, uh, these two people he, who he's kind of cellmates with, they have dreams. And Joseph interprets their dreams. Basically, he says, you know, one of you will be killed and, and one of you will be restored back to Pharaoh's royal court. So, uh, but he's like, hey, when you get back to Pharaoh's royal court, remember me. Okay, and these two people, one, one, one was killed and the other was restored to Pharaoh's court. But guess what happened when he got to Pharaoh's court? Forgot about Joseph. So Joseph is still in jail, and this guy is, you know, in Pharaoh's court. Pharaoh has troubling dreams. Basically, there's all this, you know, uh, um, symbolism and imagery, and he has all these, these weird images. And he's like, I need someone to interpret this dream. And then, you know, the, the guy in Pharaoh's court is like, oh, you know, I knew this guy named Joseph back in the day. Let's bring him here. So they bring Joseph in front of Pharaoh, and Joseph interprets the dreams. He basically says, you will have seven years of abundance and plenty. We will have plenty of, of harvest, but then seven years of famine will come. And so he, he advises Pharaoh to, you know, save up and then to uh, get ready for the, for the famine. And Pharaoh says this about Joseph. He says, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You should be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. And the Bible tells us that Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Now, I think why this passage switches to harvest imagery is because Jesus is not only greater than Jacob, Jesus is greater than Joseph. Jesus is the true and better Lord of the harvest. So whereas Jacob, uh, Joseph was gathering in a harvest of grain that could not be numbered, Jesus is gathering in a harvest of people. And the Bible tells us it's a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And Joseph was gathering in harvest for seven years, and then seven years of famine came. Jesus is gathering in the harvest, and it will not stop. There will not be a famine. Uh, and whereas Joseph himself went to prison in order to be in the position to gather in the harvest. Jesus not only went to prison, but Jesus died in order to be in a position to gather in this great harvest. He's not only the gatherer of the harvest, but he is the seed that makes the harvest even possible. In John chapter 12, verse 24, it says this. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And then a few verses later, Jesus says this, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus is saying, just like a seed has to go into the ground and die in order to bring into the harvest, Jesus himself had to die for the sins of the world in order to bring in the harvest. And he has risen again as the Lord of the harvest, and he is bringing in a harvest from all people's tribes and tongues and languages. Jesus is the true and better Joseph. So family, this is the thing. Jesus is inviting you to harvest with him. He is inviting you to be a part of this mission. His mission is scandalous. His mission is urgent. And his mission is successful. Will you join him? Amen.
Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for this time. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you are good and loving, wise and powerful and righteous. And besides you, there is no other. God, we pray that you would encourage us in the midst of what you have called us to. Lord, if we have placed our trust in you, Lord, we understand that you are also calling us to a life of making disciples, of joining you in sharing the good news as we go out and we serve and we fellowship with one another. So, Lord, I pray that you would give us courage as we engage in something that is countercultural and something that is scandalous. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be scared or we wouldn't uh, be overly concerned about what, what will happen uh, about our reputation or what will happen to us or what will people think of us. Lord, that we would go out and we would know that you love us and you approve of us even when others look sideways at us because we are causing scandal. We are rubbing against the way the world is set up. Lord, I also ask that you would uh, give us joy and satisfaction as we engage in your mission, even though it's hard, even though it's uncomfortable. Jesus, I pray that we would know a longer and deeper uh, and lasting joy and satisfaction through sacrificially serving you and with you. And Lord, lastly, I ask that you would encourage us with the fact that we are part of a winning mission, that you will succeed and you invite us into rejoicing and celebrating what you are doing and will do. So, Lord, would you encourage us? Would you embolden us? We love you. Amen. Let's stand together and respond to him. You're the word of God, the Father, from before the world began. Every star and every planet has been fashioned by your hands. All creation holds together by the power of your voice. Let the skies declare your glory. Let the land and seas rejoice. You left the gaze of angels, came to 